Welcome to the Apocalypse. I'm Chris. <laughs> and I'm Jake. And we have a fun episode <laughs> for you guys today. We're going to talk with, with the way that 2020 is going. Uh-huh. I think we need to talk about what the best vehicle will be <laughs> if you ever happen to be needing to drive somewhere during the apocalypse. Right. And... Uh, <laughs> This is going to be a little bit silly, but I'm going to try and pepper some real info in here, and maybe we can get some real advice going and and hear for some uh, for some some experts, right? We're because gonna, there are people that take this very seriously. I looked up some people's lists okay. on you know you go on you the best apocalypse vehicles. All the it is, bug out vehicle, Chris, is the common favorite it term. Is, it is the bug out vehicle, and you got your bug out bag to put in your bug out vehicle. Right. Hopefully, you got your bug out girlfriend. Because you're gonna want, <laughs> you don't want to be the bug out lonesome guy. True, you don't yeah. want to be bug out masturbating alone. <laughs> you gotta have your girlfriend, and as we'll hear later, it's nice to have a couple of really nice dogs with you as well. Yeah. Anyway, so I looked up some of these people's lists. Okay, they're awful. What? Okay, so all the lists are these giant, like two hundred, four hundred thousand dollar military based vehicles with full plating and yeah. armor plating and everything like that, and it's just not legitimate. For the average well, dude. It, it's not, yeah, attainable, perhaps. It's not attainable. It's not realistic. And I just didn't want to do that. I, I didn't find it interesting because nobody's buying a giant uh, six-wheeled Mercedes G-Wagon. <laughs> it's just not happening. Nobody's doing it. Unless you're some rich dude. And in that case, everybody's going to be going stealing his stuff before he has ever has the chance to drive that thing out of his 400,000-square-foot basement garage yeah, anyway. good point. So we, I want to try and keep it realistic. Okay. So I didn't put a price cap on this, but I did try in my head, okay, what could regular people have or what could they get? And I think the most expensive thing I have on here is probably, I don't know, $60,000, okay. which is really the most. Um, but we have what's cool is we have Logan, a resident chemical engineer, to tell us about making biodiesel and ethanol at home. Oh, which awesome. I think would be really cool because you could you could run some of these things on biodiesel. You could run them on ethanol. I suppose because at some point, as we'll talk about, you have to consider that gas could run out. Yeah, you're either going to not be able to get it, or we're going to be so far into the future that you're not buying gas anyway. Um, also, Rennie from uh, Off Grid Trek is going to talk to us about EVs as potential picks as apocalypse cars. Right. Which I think is really normally I wouldn't have considered this, but as we move forward and like, how can we use an electric vehicle as an apocalypse vehicle? It's Which certainly I, interesting. Yeah. But before we get into kind of my my requirements, right? Yes. My my criteria. Which we kind of end up throwing out the window anyway. But I, but I wrote <laughs> as, up a, as per <laughs> usual with any of your lists. Here's the criteria. By the end of it, it's out the window. Yeah, exactly. But before we get into that, what have you got for us? Yeah, we got to talk about Petrobox. Now, I can't guarantee that Petrobox will be available during the apocalypse. However, you wouldn't have to leave your house to do so because Petrobox is a monthly subscription service specifically designed for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select new items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, all that good stuff, and send it right there to your doorstep. This is your way to kind of check out all these new innovative tools and brands and things, and they get them together, put it on your doorstep. There's actually two different levels of Petrolbox to choose from. The the, I lost it. (laughs) Completely just lost it. Just keep going. The Petrobox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check those guys out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout. That'll get you $6 off your first month's order. All right, so we've got a few different things. Okay. We've got reliability, maintainability, operability and performance, and then livability. Wow, okay. So these are my abilities. Yeah, they're all abilities. These things need to be able. 
Yeah. These are able vehicles. Um, reliability, it cannot break down. Okay, that's probably the most important thing is reliability. You need yeah. to be able to rely. It cannot break down. You cannot be trying to run from a pack of looters and have your car break down. Or zombies, Chris. Or zombies. Yeah, yep. or zombies. Uh, one more likely. I, sometimes I can't tell the difference. Um, it, <laughs> it must run and travel while broken. Okay, oh, interesting. So, so it's need, it needs to be able to take a little bit of a beating, right? Sure. Because that's... It, it, even if some things are broken, it must still run. Redundancy um, in systems, perhaps. Uh, or not very many systems. Yeah, okay. Uh, the, this generally boils down to... A lot of this stuff that we're going to talk about in terms of the Cartier boils down to simplicity. Yeah. Okay. Which also helps your second factor there of maintainability. Maintainability. You need to be able to find parts, make parts, or be able to MacGyver the parts to work. Right. And we're going to talk about one car that needs very, very little. Most most of the ones at the top of the list need very little. Or some of the cars on the list, it's going to be very easy to find parts. Right. You're going to be able to just go, okay, well, this is broken on this vehicle. They made X kajillion of these things. We can just go find another one. Operability and performance. Now, there's a few different things here. Power and speed. Okay. Uh, which, you know, these are kind of trade-offs, right? Some of these things you'll have on some vehicles, some of them you won't. Um, power and speed, fuel economy. Is, yeah, okay. is important you know you want to be able to have fuel economy because there's probably not going to be a lot of gas and fuel on or off-road on and off-road capability right sometimes you might want to go off-road i mean you're going to be driving down oh yeah you're going to be driving down i-35 trying to run away from the blizzard that is minnesota because your furnace in your house doesn't work anymore you're going to need to be, find a way to get around the cars that are clogging up 35 that have all the doors open <laughs> and they're stuck there <laughs> Or there's the zombies that are actually trapped inside the vehicle trying Ooh, to get out yeah. with their head banging on the window. Because, like, you the guy drive. from last week's news story, he can't figure out how to operate the uh, Model 3's yeah, interior yeah, the, door handle. a bunch of dudes stuck <laughs> in their Model 3's. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, livability. Okay. You know, you may need to live out of this vehicle for a little sure. bit. Sure. You need space to live. You need uh, storage. Right, for sure. And one thing that's important is we want to find vehicles that are going to help with your morale. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Morale is extremely important. So I mean, you need a cool vehicle. It's gotta be cool. So you are happy about That's it. That's right. It's gotta be cool. Lifted Miata. Here we come. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no storage. That would be very low for morale. That would be very low for morale. Oh, Especially on, it smiles at you constantly. Guy, some guy drives by in like an Econoline Dodge <laughs> or an Econoline van four by four that's set up for overlanding in your in your Miata four by four. It's gonna be really bad for morale. It's gonna be really, it's gonna be really, really bad for morale. Okay. So now let's throw that out the window. Talk about cars we want to drive in the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what are some threats of apocalyptic threats? There's Ooh. there's basically, in my mind, they all lead to the same thing. So hold on. Let's just go down 2020 so far and see how many there are that we check. <laughs> yeah, okay. So so pandemic. Yeah, pandemic. But they all call they all cause the same thing. Pandemic, war, whatever. They all call this cause the same thing, which is civil unrest. Looting, rioting, panic, economic co collapse, which causes runs on gas stations, banks, um, causes runs on grocery stores. We saw a little bit of that. Yeah, we did. Like actually. you kind of got a little bit of a preview of what could really happen if the, uh, basically the supply chains break down. People can't get fuel. They're not bringing your stuff to your house with a truck. Our system right now is extremely dependent on power grid and supply chain. Sure. And that makes sense. And when most things that you think of that would cause a collapse, that is the collapse that you're talking about. You're not talking about the nuclear bomb going off over New York City. You're talking about the the uh, the total panic and collapse of the supply chain. So nobody's getting any stuff, and that's what's really going to cause panic. It's going to cause people to to hurt each other, attack each other, loot, whatever the case may be. Um, they all kind of lead to the same thing: civil unrest. So that's okay. that's basically what we're going to talk about: is civil unrest and what happens when you're not able to get anything. 
Gotcha. You also have um, the nuclear attack. This is one that people always talk about is when they talk about old cars. Yeah. And is they talk about nuclear attacks and EMPs. Right. And an EMP is an electromagnetic pulse, which is also sometimes sometimes called a transient electromagnetic disturbance. Ooh. It's basically a, a short burst of electro- electromagnetic energy. So yeah. there's there's a few ways that uh, EMPs can destroy electronics. The main one is because an EMP is high electrostatic effects. Um, it can destroy solid-state tr- electronics if that is high enough. Um, so how does an EMP work? Basically, an EMP is a nuke. Well, yes. So a, nu- a nuke has an EMP effect. It does have an, an ectomagnetic blast. It just happens that that doesn't matter because everything within that range is also destroyed by the explosion However, itself. if you want, let's say you're a crafty guy uh-huh. from North Korea, uh-huh. and you want to basically disable a country without destroying it, Okay, which is, I don't think... I. I don't necessarily, I had this kind of lore in the list, but I can talk about it now because it came up. I don't think that's what's going to happen. Yeah. I don't think you're going to see America attacked by an EMP. Maybe you would see maybe a third world country or a smaller country that's maybe part not part of NATO might get attacked by an EMP. Not us. Because if you attack us with an EMP, all our military defenses are hardened. You're done. You're you're done. Right. You are. It's over for you. Wherever, yeah. Whoever you are, wherever you are, it's over. Um, you're, you're more likely to see if you're going to see anything, a nuclear attack on a city, which as a result will cause an EMP. You're not going to see it just an EMP attack of um, basically what they do is they they take a, a bomb, a nuclear bomb, uh-huh. and they blow it up in the sky. Yeah. Like 30, 50, 60 miles into That's the atmosphere. That's actually not the only way. You can make an EMP as a device without the explosion. Right, but it's still basically a nuclear reaction causing a radiological... Nope. Explain. Okay, so the reason I know this is the first time I heard of EMPs was like early 2000s in Popular Mechanics. Popular Mechanics gave you basically a diagram on how to build an EMP in your backyard, which I think they got a lot of hate mail for. They were like, why were you telling people how to do this? So I almost started to build one just because I wanted to try it. I was going to get like a little radio in the backyard and like put this thing next to it and see if I could disable it. So basically all you need to do is create extremely high power magnetic field. Think of basically a magnetic coil, right? So you run a ton of power through a coil to make a magnetic field. Then you expand that magnetic magnetic coil field extremely quickly. And the easiest way to do that is? An explosion. But the explosion (laughs) is not the actual methodology of it. It's just expanding the magnetic field. So what you can do is have a little cylinder with like gasoline or something that then blows that magnetic coil apart. So it doesn't have to be a large explosion to get a large effect. No, but at least that's what I remember from 20 years ago in popular mechanics. For this to work for war, though, you need the nuclear bomb part of it, the nuclear explosion... You have to have that because nobody's throwing gasoline into the atmosphere expecting it to blow up and knock out the entire United States. You need the nuclear bomb effect to find Chris. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, saying. didn't you watch Ocean's Eleven? Remember they EMP'd right next to the right next to the Canada casino. Well, that must be true. It's Hollywood is, is, is super into their physics. Yeah. Um, so basically, the the EMP pulse in Japan that was in Hiroshima, Nagasaki. It was around, I'm not EMP pulse, the, 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 the nuclear um, blast, the nuclear blast, the, the charge of it was 15 kilotons. Okay. So we're talking about um, having a device that's around 100 kilotons. So 10 times more powerful. And if you launch it into the atmosphere, blow it up, anything within line of sight on the horizon is <laughs> what will be affected. So wow. you're talking, um, if it's huge th- swaths, 30 miles up in the atmosphere, would it would affect basically the entire Midwest. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, there's a couple of different things that happen when an EMP goes off. Okay. An E1 pulse 
is the fast component of a nuclear MP, a brief but intense electromagnetic field that can quickly induce. And there's a point to all this because I want to talk about cars. In okay. Minute. In a minute, I'm not just trying to get sciency for the for the fact of getting sciency. A brief but intense electromagnetic field that can quickly induce very high voltages in electroconductors and transformers in the power grid within line of sight of the detonation. The E1 is too fast for standard lightning surge protection and is produced when the gamma radiation knocks electrons out of the atoms in the upper atmosphere. Oh. An E2 pulse is generated by scattered gamma rays and inelastic gammas, which I have no idea what an inelastic gamma is. Well, Chris, Sounds like it should open its mind. And it's consider- obviously the one that, yeah, is, is not very this, elastic. This inelastic gamma should open its mind and accept other gammas. Yeah, it, it should. Does. It, it should. should. It would be more elastic and open-minded. It should. It should. Yeah. I'm so tempted. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, inelastic gamma is produced by neutrons. Uh, because of the similarities to lightning-caused pulses, the E2 pulse is considered to be easier to protect against an E1. It just comes after the E1. Okay. Um, according to the EMP commission in 2004— Well, there's a commission. There was. that just, They basically tested a lot of this. Okay. So they actually, back in the—when uh, they were testing a lot of bombs, uh-huh. they did a lot of testing in the atmosphere for these two. Right. Actual blowing up nuclear weapons 30 yeah, miles no, up in the air. I, yeah. uh, According to the EMP commission in 2004, the most significant risk um, of an E1 followed by an E2 is synergism. Because the E2 component follows a small fraction of a second after the first component's insult. I like that they call insult. it an insult. Yeah, the inelastic gamma's insult. Oh, <laughs> they can't handle those insults. <laughs> they just can't. Uh, which has the ability to impair or destroy many protective and control features. So basically, you're, what happens is you're, the first blast uh, is destroys your surge protector. It's way too fast for it. And the second one um, comes afterward and just destroys it even more. The E3 pulse is oh, generated man. by the fireball of a nuclear explosion, uh-huh. which expands and collapses, causing the Earth's magnetic field to oscillate. Wow. Basically, you think of when you have a drop of water, it drops into yeah, the water, it goes, bloom, bloom, and then you just see the, the continuous the oscillation. oscillation. It can last minutes. The E3 pulse is low-frequency pulse, which, unlike high-frequency E1 and E2 pulses, can penetrate the ground where it can induce geomagnetically induced electric currents in buried cables, where it basically destroys transformers and the power grid. Oh, wow. So those are all the things that are happening when EMP goes off. But, like, so a lot of times you see, well, my car is impervious to uh, 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 an EMP. Okay, the the people I am talking to are not telling me that out of the blue, Chris. I don't know what kind of weird preppers you're hanging out with, but they're not like, yeah, my diesel. When you look this this stuff up on the internet, they're like, hey, my car's got points. It's got Uh carburetors. It's not... It's not going to be affected by any of this. So um, my question is, Was do EMPs really destroy car electronics? Right. Okay, so the, this is the myth or not of the EMP. The same commission in 2004 subjected 37 different cars and trucks to simulated EMP attacks and found that none of them suffered permanent crippling damage, although the results were somewhat mixed. Interesting. Basically, what they found is uh, 90% of the cars would suffer no ill effects at all. Really? 90%? EMP. The thing is, is that if... If they're off and they're not operating, oh. they almost don't They don't have it's, any. It's not an issue. It's not an issue. Um, another factor that may help protect the electronics in cars is that the metal body of the vehicle can act as a partial Faraday cage. Yeah. What is it, Jake? What's a Faraday cage? A Faraday cage is basically something that has it. You see, your microwave is a Faraday cage. It's right. the best Faraday cage in any house. It's basically a, they call it a cage, but it's anything that contains electromagnetic fields. Basically, if you are trying to, uh, you throw your phone in a, in a, in a Faraday cage, like a bag or something like that. If you don't want to be tracked, they can, you can throw your phone in there. It basically prevents. In a chip bag, usually, because it's foil. 
Yes, that would. That's be, what I've I, seen. That's that. I've, what I've I do. I've seen that in movies too. This is basically why you can, if you're in your car and it gets struck by lightning. You're 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 fine, um, and it's also why car radio antennas are located outside rather than inside of the car. Because if the antennas was located inside of the car, reception's not very not good. great. Yeah, uh, via the EMP commission, this is what they say. Mm-hmm. We tested a sample of 37 cars in an EMP simulation laboratory with automobile vintages running from 86 through 2002. Okay. Automobiles of these vintages include extensive electronics and represent a significant fraction of automobiles on the road today. The testing was conducted by exposing running and non-running automobiles to sequentially increasing EMP field intensities. If anomalous response, either temporary or permanent, was observed, the testing of that particular automobile was stopped. If no anomalous response was observed, the testing was continued up until the field intensity limits of the simulation capability. Approximately 50, who knows, whatever that is. Kilovolts per meter, Chris. Kilovolts per meter? Or no, minute? I don't know. Kilovolts per minute? Yeah, sure. Yeah, let's let's go. That, what, what else could M stand uh, it's, for? It's... It's 50 kV per M, Chris. Yeah, 50 kV per M. Someone's like, what's up? <laughs> Automobiles were subject, subjected to EMP environments under both engine turned off. Kilovolt per micron? Per microwave. We're looking really stupid right now. We're just gonna keep... And engine turned on conditions. No effects were sub- sub- subsequently observed in those automobiles that were not turned on during EMP. So exposure. none of the ones... If your car's just parked, yeah, it's not a problem. Interesting. Which is something I didn't know. I thought it was just like... Your, your car basically starts jumping around in the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> the, the most serious effect observed on running automobiles was that the motors in the three car stopped at field strengths of approximately 30 kilovolts slash M or above. It's an actual. <laughs> we don't even know it's kilovolts. It's just KV. I'm guessing it's kilovolts. It's kilovolts over time is my guess. Right. That's usually over time is what a lot of these equations are. In an actual EMP exposure, these vehicles would glide to a stop and require the driver to restart them. And that's it. Electronics in, in the dashboard of one automobile were damaged and required repair. Other effects were relatively minor. 25 automobiles exhibited malfunctions that could be considered only a nuisance. Blinking dashboard lights, etc. And did not so, require... A.K.A. every Volkswagen? Yeah. Maybe they've just encountered an EMP. A, was that an EMP? It, my check engine light is on. <laughs> Obviously, I drove through an EMP. Just keep driving. Eight of the 37 <laughs> cars tested did not exhibit any anomalous response interesting yeah so uh some of the they did test semis as well okay and they found that semis were far more apt to have issues really um, yeah the, uh, none, Big diesel none, engines 13 of the 18 trucks exhibited a response while running most seriously three of the trucks motors stopped two could be restarted immediately but one required being towed to a garage for repair the other 10 trucks that exhibited uh relatively minor temporary responses that did not require driver intervention to correct five of the 18 trucks did not exhibit any based on these results we expect few trucks at emp field levels below this 12 kilovolts slash m at higher field levels 70 percent blah blah blah, 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 blah. basically they're saying that semi trucks are slightly more apt to uh apt to have have problems um yeah i, I found kilovolt that. over meter we uh, were right the first time you were right yeah uh Newer cars, in my opinion, though, um, have much more delicate electronics than anything. Because this was 2004, right. 2002, 2003, kind of. Yeah, we got, we got almost 20 years on that now. We've got a lot of CAN bus stuff. We've got a lot of LCD screens. We've got, a, I mean, it'll, yeah. You know what? What about a Saturn? I wonder if they tested a Saturn that's plastic. Why? Not, Chris, the body panels were plastic, know, not the whole structure. I know that, but that's all part of the system of protecting the. What if you had you threw yep. your phone in a chip bag and then it cut a bunch of holes in it? Obviously, it's not going to work as well. Mm. No, because a Faraday cage, like actually one that you built to like stand in, is usually just like mesh. Yeah, 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 right. Well, I'm just 
I'm thinking the newer cars probably are going to be more susceptible. You would think so. But we don't have any data concerning that, so it's just a thought. It's Chris's opinion again. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I picked, uh, I think, 10, maybe less than 10. Uh, apocalypse cars and trucks. The years are plus or minus. Whatever I say year, it's not only that year. Right, it's um, that like generation or... Exactly, exactly. All right, so before we get to our list, what have you got for us? Yes. You know what you need to do, Chris, is keep your apocalypse vehicle looking good. You can do that with Oberk Car Care. Oberk is a Midwest manufacturer of polishing compounds and supplies that is research, tested, and developed by professional detailers. Oberk products are designed to decimate swirls, holograms, oxidation, all that crummy, gross-looking paint that you have on your car, that can be fixed by Oberk. And right now, Oberk is offering 20% off any order online with the code OVERCREST. The discount code is good not only on OberkCarCare.com, but also on CarSuppliesWarehouse.com and DetailedImage.com. This is uh, this is good stuff. I need to. I keep saying I hate detailing, Chris. Yeah, I but, haven't used it yet, but I have used it in the past. It's really good. I gotta get on it. Yeah, I've got some as well. I used it last uh, last summer on the car. It worked worked great. All right, number ten. This is my off the grid option. It's number ten because I still don't think it's a great option yet. The Nissan Leaf. This is so interesting. All right, so I feel like these could be a viable option once there's no gas and diesel left. Is it possible that we could sort some sort of basic solar array to charge cars? Right. Because if there's no refinement, if there's no delivery, yeah. I mean, the only thing stopping the sun from getting near solar panel is clouds. Right. Well, and well, actually, let's that, let's think about this okay. for a second. So no clouds. Okay, solar panels are much more efficient under non-direct sunlight than a lot of people think. I'm, Even under cloud cover. What about under a nuclear winter? <laughs> the sun is still out there, Chris. Potentially. Well, we're, it's, we got to talk about all the options. If there's a nuclear attack and it's super nuclear winter outside, this Your gonna Nissan be... isn't going to be there. It's not going to survive a nuclear blast anyways, Chris. Well, if there's a huge nuclear blast in on the other side of the world, we could still experience... Uh, a lot of issues in in the air. I'm just saying. Okay, so don't use a leaf in that scenario. Don't use a leaf in that scenario. Maybe <laughs> you're so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Regardless, just it out there. okay. If we didn't have fuel, yeah, it's an interesting thought that you could use an electric car. Or you could, could you? You could. So I'm thinking there. There's a 40 to 60 kilowatt hour battery, depending on the Nissan Leaf you get, what year you get. Okay. Um, with a 100 watt solar panel, that's in my math around four to 600 hours to charge it up. At which point. When do you start losing a charge from the first hour just by sitting there? <laughs> I don't think that the battery is just going to discharge all by itself. Okay. I, mean, I think you're probably going to be all right. The problem is, is that you got to find a way to get the power into into the car. Um, is it possible to have a setup that you could basically bring with you to charge your car up wherever you go? You know, that would be your nice. Bug I called up Rennie from Off Grid Tech, an overlanding company based out of Alberta, Canada, to find out if he thinks that a Leaf or a Volt or something like that would be a viable bug-out vehicle today. Randy from OffGridTrek.com. Thanks so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. Yeah, you bet. I, uh, let me put it to you straight. What are your thoughts on using EV as a go-to in the event of basically uh, some sort of apocalypse event that's you know, civil unrest, society's collapsed, you got to have a car to drive around? Is it even possible to rely on an electric vehicle? Uh, yeah, and that's kind of a loaded question. I would, I would say yes and no. As long as you have, it comes down to where can you get your fuel? So your power from the sun, where can you get that from? 
So if the grid goes down, unless you're running off of a generator or you have a reliable um, source of solar to use, then, yeah, that would be the main question. Would you have that? I think that I, I think of the first thing I think of when I think of some sort of civil unrest is runs at the gas station, right? Everybody's going down and getting in line at the gas station and it's all gone, right? It's just gone. Yeah. Your, your gas is gone. Your diesel's gone. Um, one thing that I think will survive initially, at least, is the power grid because that's going to be run by some or at least supported or subsidized by some government entity. They're going to want to keep the power on. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I definitely agree with that. So at some point, though, if things get bad <laughs> enough, the grid's going to go down. Um, how are you able to uh, to use an electric vehicle in the event where there's no power grid to, to, to plug it in and charge it? Well, like as an example, with my company, Off Grid Trek, we offer deployable solar blanket options. Now, this is more specific to overlanding vehicles, which or trailers. So let's let's talk about the vehicles for an example, and then how this can transition over to this. So, like a gas or diesel powered vehicle, where people want to go out, they don't want to run their engines; they want to rely on battery power to run their fridge freezer that they're using for camping, or if they're just wanting to get off the grid because of something going on, like civil unrest or what have you. Uh, they could use our, uh, we have a bug out kit that's specifically designed for that. Theoretically, most of our customers, they will run gas or diesel uh, operated vehicles right now. However, theoretically, our solar blankets could be used to provide a small amount of power for driving short distances with these electric vehicles. So yes, theoretically, it is very possible. So basically, if I have a, I think a Nissan Leaf is somewhere between, depending on what one you have, like 60 and 40 uh kilowatt hour batteries and it was going to take to charge one of those up with any of these type of systems or any any small system that you'd be able to take with you anywhere we're still talking a couple hundred hours to charge up the the car right yeah it depends on the watt hours that the solar product uh the solar blanket or solar panel is going to put out like as an example i'll use our bigger one that we have as an example We've got a 215-watt solar blanket. I call it a blanket because it's similar to what we used when I was in the Army. Um, I've just designed it a little bit better. So it's only 13.6 pounds, folds up to the size of a laptop when it's not in use, and it's designed so that it can go on the windshield of a vehicle or on the hood or hang off the side or even just lay flat on the ground. It's still going to provide power. That specific solar blanket would put out 11.7 amps in perfect sunlight. So... Having two of those paired together, you're going to get close to 25 amps. So I, I, I'm not familiar with the specs of the Nissan Leaf, but I would have to verify the amount of amps that would be required to charge that. But I believe we would be within that threshold. So it's just going to take some time. You know, it's gonna, it's not going to be easy. But I guess in that situation, you don't, you don't really care if it's easy or not. You just want to charge your car. Well, if you know, if the option is you don't have fuel and you have zero mobility, this is a viable option. So that's really interesting to hear. And what does one of these kits come with when you're buying this kit? Because you got to find some way, right? So you've got your solar blanket. You can't just plug the solar blanket into the cigarette lighter of the car, right? You've got to be able to convert that from, um, I guess it's. Uh, AC to DC or vice versa. I'm not sure which. How do you get that power into the car? Yeah, you bet. So, like, as an example, we offer three different sizes of, uh, we call them our solar bug out kits. 
So I'll use a 215 watt as an example. So what that comes with is the solar blanket, of course. It does come with a battery clip cable, so it's more for your traditional 12, 24 volt battery or even a lithium battery setup. It can be programmed to charge those as well, too. Um, so theoretically, this could be programmed. We just have to verify what the battery connectors are for the Nissan Leaf or any vehicle like that and how to connect on there. Um, so you have your battery clip cable, you have your, your MPPT solar charge controller, and then we have a 16 and a half foot extension cable, and then a really nice bag that's designed for us by uh, one of our suppliers out of Utah, um, just to, to keep everything together. So it's not a rat's nest of cables, if you know what I mean. Yeah, for sure. So the way, and I'll use, I've got a heavily modified Toyota 4Runner, so it's not a Nissan Leaf, but I'll just use it as an example. Um, a lot of times I'll have a 65 liter Dometic fridge freezer in there. I've got my rooftop tent. Uh, if I want to, you know, get out of the city, go do some camping, or let's say I'm worried there's civil unrest or what have you, I want to get out. I can go to whatever location I want. I can, in 30 seconds or less, I can have that solar blanket deployed, attached to the battery, and it's providing power. And I would actually run out of food or water before I ran out of power with that specific setup. Wow. Well, I guess you better bring a rifle with you too then. <laughs> and maybe a well. Um, so in your mind, obviously, this isn't, in today's society, I don't think an EV is the best. That's why it's, this is going to be number 10 on our list of, of cars that you want to have in, in the event of an apocalypse. Number one for me is, oh, I can't say what it is. I, I can't reveal early what number one is for me. But let's just say it, it does run on dinosaurs. But in your mind, what is the best apocalypse vehicle that you could have? <laughs> yeah, the loaded question, because everybody's going to have their opinion. I'm, I'm going to go based off what I drive. Now, some people will agree, some people won't. I have a Toyota 4Runner. I, I love the Toyota 4Runner. I think it's a beautiful platform. I can easily get a half million kilometers out of that engine before it's going to need anything major done to it. Um, for the size, for me, for my specific needs, I have two Japanese uh, bear hunting dogs, so they're very large dogs. They're in the back. My girlfriend can fit in there. We have room for one or two others if we choose to. Uh, literally, I can go anywhere anywhere with that. And just the suspension, even a stock 4Runner is unbelievable with the amount that it can do. Like, Jeeps are beautiful. I love Jeeps as well, too. I just don't like the amount of space you have in there. That was kind of a non-selling feature for me because I could not fit two big dogs and my gear and the girlfriend in there. It wasn't possible. Well, you got to be able to bring the girlfriend. A man's got to survive. <laughs> I'm more interested in these Japanese bear hunting dogs. Yeah, I'm going to have to look up what, what, what that is. So let's say a guy is doesn't have um, forty or fifty thousand dollars to spend on a forerunner. Let's say he's just a he's just a he's just a guy that works at some retail shop and he wants to have a car that he can just drive around and that at some point if the shit goes down. He's going to have a car that he can drive. So we're thinking maybe less than $10,000. Do you have a pick for that? Uh, well, anything with a lot of good. You can buy a lot of used vehicles in that price range. I would say anything as long as it has four-wheel drive, preferably your traditional four-wheel drive, not the electrical four-wheel drive. Like as an example, the 4Runner actually has a sh uh, shifter that you put in. And the reason that I'm, I'm saying that, I'll give you an example. This past weekend, we went out to an area just outside of where I live, a uh, beautiful area right in the mountains, uh, when we drove in, we had a creek. When we drove out, we had five rivers. In some areas, it was up to my shoulders. I was towing one of our South African off-road camping trailers. Um, we towed 
a Dodge out. There were several other vehicles that were, it's called hydrolocked. When you actually get fluid besides what's supposed to be in the engine. So when you get moisture in the engine and a lot of the issues they were having were because they actually have electrical four wheel drive. That was the main issue. A lot of that, the electrical was going out on them. Yeah. So for that specific reason, that's another reason I would go with something with a physical four wheel drive, a lever, like your traditional, what four wheel drive used to be. It's almost like those things are, a lot of people are really into the old Toyotas that you're talking about, like an 88 Forerunner or something. I mean, it's basically what you're talking about at that point. Yeah. Yeah, you can tell because the price has gone up on them. You can't even get one anymore. That's right. That's right. Well, dude, I really appreciate you calling in. Where can people find out more about your your products that you're selling? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Our website has a lot of really good information. It's offgridtrek.com, and Trek is spelled T-R-E-K. And I think it's really cool, the product that you have, the blanket. I, I had never heard of anything like that. But when I, I look it up on the website, having something that is that portable and it can unfold and, and do what it does, I think it's really, really interesting. And uh, maybe, you know, as things go down the road where all the combustion engines start to disappear and become uh, harder and harder to maintain and buy parts for, we may need to consider stuff like this when it comes to our bug out vehicles. Yeah, exactly. All right, dude. Thanks a lot. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. You're more than welcome. Enjoy the rest of your day. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So are you more convinced or less convinced after talking to Rennie? I don't think it's viable right now. The The question is how many of those solar blankets you could like fit in a leaf and then put out in a field somewhere well, and charge could, it at you once. You could wire them up in series. and probably Right. Get but if you could have like 400 of them, then you could just, well, actually, they're 200 watts. So all you need is 200 of these things. And then you could charge your leaf in an hour. Yeah, there Which you is go. probably better than plugging it in the wall anyways. I'm going to guess that the amperage of the, the unit that he has is probably can't support that kind of. Imagine how long it would take to just, all right, kids, now unfold all unfold out 200 of these solar blankets. No, it is a really cool concept, though. Like he said, if you're just like overlanding or if it is a bug out vehicle that's gas, one of these other ones on our list, to have this as a power supply. Right. Because you're still going to want to charge your devices or anything else or have a heater or a fridge going. Right, so, exactly. Well, a heater, really cool. I don't know that it's going to run a heater, but a fridge, it probably, it yeah. probably would. You know, I think of um, the future that at some point, you're going to have to start thinking about how to do this. If you're planning for this type of thing, you're going to have to think about how am I going to get my electric car to work? You know, if the grid goes down, blah, blah. This is all like pipe dream stuff, right? I mean, yeah. we're all, uh, this is kind of a... <laughs> the people that are buying electric vehicles are not the ones who are prepping. No, but at some point, they will be. Yeah, maybe. And I'm thinking maybe this technology can be adapted to that. That's why I put it on the list. Number 10, the Nissan Leaf. All right. All right. So next on the list is some sort of modern van conversion. Now, this seems also, to be kind of like the most popular. Yeah. Well, I don't think these people are prepping for the apocalypse. They're just prepping to get out and overland and go explore. It's more like camping. Yeah. yeah. But in this case, it's a perfect alternative Absolutely. as your bug out vehicle. Um, so some of the modern van conversions are Ford Transit Connects. Um, I found a Mercedes Sprinter van 4x4 conversion to be the most attractive because it comes with a V6 diesel engine. Yes. I like diesels in, in these situations, as you'll find out later. My um, good friends have one of these, a oh, Sprinter van conversion like that was it four-wheel drive yes was is it awesome it, yeah i haven't it, seen it yet but it's awesome they're super awesome so the sprinter uh sports mobile is one that i found they make one uh it's available with a four by four high low configuration in both the one oh, so you have a low range and a high range low range high oh, range cool. it comes with a three liter blue tech v6 with 188 horsepower and 325 pound feet of torque and it's got a five-speed automatic transmission so basically you buy the van uh-huh okay you buy the sprinter van it's 40 grand 
Okay. The all-wheel drive conversion is eight grand. Okay. So you're at fifty grand immediately. Mm. And if you want to start decking out the back, yeah, of the van, because you're not just going to live in a panel van now. Just to start, and I looked up at this other company. Mm. If you want to do, start with the modular kit for the back, which gives you outlets and lights and stuff like that, but it's not your bedding, it's not your stove, it's not all this other stuff. You're at like ten grand immediately. Oof. So we're like at that sixty thousand dollar limit. Yeah. Kind of that I set for myself, fifty, sixty grand. But I think that uh, you could do this cheaper. I think if you bought like a, you know, the GMC, my favorite for this type of thing is like a GMC Safari all-wheel drive. Right. You know what I'm talking about? The, like the yeah, little it's van. Just, it's a Chevy truck, but with a van on it. And think, what is it built off S10? No, no, no. Those are full size. Yeah. So it's a Silverado. The GMC Safari is? Pretty I don't sure. think so. Their towing capacity is only like 1,500 pounds. Really? Yeah. They're not a truck. It's not a real truck. I swear it was on their. I looked at buying one of these for a while. They're not a real truck. Even mm. the V6 has a really paltry towing capacity. Really? It's not a truck. But they make they're all-wheel drive. Uh-huh. You know, they, it's got a V6 in it. They're pretty reliable. And it gives you room in the back to have a living space, storage, that type of thing. Oh, it's built off of the Chevy Astro van. So, yeah, no. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Astro van also comes in all-wheel drive if you want to get the, the V6 Astro van as sure. well. All right. On to number eight. The Jeep... Cherokee XJ, Chris. This is a great choice. This is a very good choice. So the 1983 Jeep Cherokee was Jeep's first all-new vehicle design since 1963, which was the Wrangler. Right. Known as the XJ chassis, there's probably most ubiquitous Jeep aside from the Wrangler itself. They produced uh, the same chassis all the way from 1983 up to 2014. Who else has done that? Zero people. So these things are cheap and everywhere. Yep. They came available in two four-door configurations with the rear hatch, and you you can get a manual trans, you can get automatic, you can get them, of course, four-wheel drive. They did make two-wheel drive variants as well. Not the best option for this, but... You see the two-wheel drive ones a lot in the south. Oh, I suppose. There's a bunch of two-wheel drive ones there. What you don't have on this list here, though, is that it's got the the the, the four-liter in line six. Which is, it's like a tractor engine. It is. The thing runs forever. And that is obviously really, really important. Yeah. They certainly offer more space than a Wrangler with just as much, if not more, off-road performance. Now, it's no doubt these are favorite for these guys off-roading and making rock crawlers, as well as, when you Google this, it's all these DIY bug-out vehicles based on the XJ. And another fun fact, Chris, that lends their credence, is they were also used as forestry service vehicles. Right. With I that, like, those. mint green yeah, two-door. This, this pale mint green with no, basically no radio, crank windows, super base model. Just simple. As very, we talked about simple. one of your first factors, simplicity. And simplicity and reliability. And uh, they've got some space in the back. Exactly. To, you can actually storage. sleep in them. The one problem they do have is they have a lot of windows. True. They have a lot of windows. So you're going to have to do something. Is that about, a negative? I think so. I think having a lot of windows is a negative in this case compared to like uh, like a Sprinter van that has no windows. It's just steel. Yeah, I suppose. I think, uh, privacy and stuff like that is going to be a concern if you're driving around in the apocalypse (laughs) good point all (laughs) right so that is number eight what is number seven okay so this is going to seem strange that it's above the jeep cherokee but i have a reason for this okay all right so the 2000 to 2006 chevy tahoe which is basically built on the silverado yeah that is the actual truck gmt 800 uh, chassis they made thousands you think they made a lot of jeeps the tahoe in this era it was like J.D. Power's best SUV, blah, blah, blah. They made a gajillion of these things. They are everywhere. Mm. It's got a bulletproof small block V8. Yep. Um, it, the Crown Vic probably is the only thing that comes close, but you can't. I didn't put that on the list because it's not that useful. 
You know, right. it's, it's a trade off. Only rear wheel drive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just not that useful. Um, but here's the thing you can get a flex fuel option with these. So okay. this is a flex fuel vehicle, um, and uh, yeah. which, which means if you want, you can run your homemade ethanol in it if you want. So can you make homemade ethanol? I'm happy you asked. That's why I brought Logan in to talk about how to make your own ethanol and your own biodiesel. Logan, thanks so much for coming in the studio, man. It's great to have you here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what do you what do you do? What is what qualifies you to to, to talk about? Uh, Why are any- you smarter than us? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm probably not smarter than you guys, but I spent a long time being taught this, paying good money in school. So I have a degree in chemistry from Winona State University, um, and I've been a practicing chemist for about a decade now in the paint industry. So I develop paints and coatings, and I use the kind of things that you're talking about every day as feedstocks for the products that I build for major corporations. That's kind of what I do for a living. And you are very well versed in Volkswagen diesels too, right? It's kind of my thing. It's uh, the reason why we know each other. It is. What, so what are you driving at home? What do you got hanging out there? So right now at home uh, for just normal cars, I've got a 2015 emissions recall turbo diesel Volkswagen Golf. Chris is a big fan of those. Yeah, I've got one of those as well. I love the cheap. I got a fully loaded one for way less than it should have cost me. So I'm going to drive that thing into the ground. Um, and then I got a Mazda RX-7. I think we've talked about that a little bit before, which, yep. you know, today is uh, under the knife. It's halfway apart. Is that the FD chassis? Yeah, the FD. Right. What do you mean it's apart? What are you doing? Uh, so I found out that I got a leak in my intake manifold. It was causing a rough idle. So air was getting in where it shouldn't. And I'm okay. losing boost to the front rotor. And I traced it back. I did that cool thing where you take a cigar and you use a transfer pump for Harbor Freight. And you pump it into the intake manifold. To yeah, find smoke leak. tracing. Yeah, uh, that was that was the trick. So it's got a leak in the intake manifold. The paper gasket blew out. Got to replace it with metal. It's a big deal. Turbo's got to come out. Got to get a bunch yes. of access. So now, do you have an old? Do you still have an old Volkswagen diesel or not? Got rid of it. Sold it to one of those diesel hoarder guys in Nebraska. <laughs> it had two hundred and sixty thousand on it, and the guy gave me four grand and trailered it away. Well, that's you can't you can't really argue with that. No, I just took the man money and ran. So, <laughs> so. Uh, what I want to know is how to make, uh, we're, I want to talk about biodiesel and ethanol. Sure. Um, how do you make ethanol at home? Because it seems like this huge process when you think of um, farming, getting transferred to ethanol, it seems like this big industrial complex, but you can make it at your house. Yeah, absolutely. So when you see commercial ethanol making, right, that's the product of 250 years or more of people figuring out what's the easiest way I can do this, you know, in in not batch. I want to make a ton of it. I want to make it fast. But everybody that's ever done a home beer kit is making ethanol, right? So right. you need to take any kind of... Because it's basically alcohol, right? It's grain but, alcohol. Oh, that's exactly what it is. But we gotta we kind of got to get it to a purified state where there's very little water in it. If we're gonna if we're gonna be able to use it in a car and have it still combust and have the kind of the, the right attributes to work in that fuel system. So right? when you're talking about making it in your backyard, are we basically just making moonshine? Yeah, that's what we're doing. Which uh, <laughs> the revenuers wouldn't uh, wouldn't have a good look towards, but since it's the apocalypse, we can do whatever we want. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense to me. <laughs> that's exactly it. So here's the question: Can I drink and burn my fuel? Because <laughs> that's something you can't do with uh, with biodiesel. You don't want to be drink necessarily drinking mm, biodiesel. Not. No, I don't think that'd be good. No, no, not at all. So, what do I need to what do I need to get? How do I how do I make this stuff? Okay, so we need some kind of sugar, right? So we can use corn. We could use wheat. 
Um, if you had sugarcane because you live someplace really warm or you had a ton of molasses, any of that stuff can be fermented. When I was in, um, I think it was St. Kitts, I ended up trying to find the moonshine that these guys would drink because they're not they're not basically uh they're not having captain morgan right these dudes are poor they can't afford it oh. so i'm like hey what do you guys drink down here what do you i was at the bar he's like we drink barry's hammond is so I'm, like, I'm like well, what's barry's hammond he says well it's made out of the leftover molasses from they have these big vats that they they put all they they you know put all the sugar in and make the sugar blah 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 mm-hmm. and then what's left is they scrape the edges of it oh sure and then they distill Barry's Hammond off of the stuff and it kind of tasted like cupcake frosting <laughs> was what it kind of tasted like and that I, sounds like trouble one hundred percent attribute my first child <laughs> to Barry's Hammond and uh, so what we did is we, he, he's like you need to bring me an empty. so what we did Chris you don't need to explain how you developed a child okay <laughs> what we did is we took we went and bought like a bottle of uh, rum uh-huh. and basically dumped it out and then gave it to him and he brought it back filled up and he says if anybody asks just say you were sampling because you can open it and bring it home and then we just tape it oh, shut oh sure and uh, so that was basically it. I have no idea what proof this stuff was but it was <laughs> in I mean you it must have been basically ethanol because it was the, it was hardcore yeah it was it was crazy so basically you need a still yeah you got to get a still and you got to get a sugar source and then probably the highest powered yeast you can get your hands on to do your fermenting. So when we make beer at home, you got like yeast that can handle five to 8%. But when you, uh, when you want to make moonshine, the guys go and get distillation yeast or, or Chardonnay yeast, and it can handle a lot more alcohol. Cause if you think about it, let's make math simple. We got a hundred gallons of, of stuff that we're going to ferment. If we can get it up to 14% alcohol, that means I get 14 gallons out of it. Okay. If I got oh. crappy yeast that can only do 5%, I'm only, I've only got five gallons of ethanol to get out of this, right? Right. So you want to use really high, really high proof uh, or a lot of sugar. You want to use really good yeast. So when you say really good yeast, is that basically how tolerant it is to the alcohol? Because it's, I mean, it's, it's a living thing, right? Yeast. Yeah. And so at some point when the alcohol level gets high enough, it'll kill off the yeast. Yep. So gotcha. we've, we've bred them more and more tolerant over the years, depending on the kind of booze we're trying to make or beer or whatever. And the stuff that you'd get just out of the atmosphere that would ferment it only get you four, 3%. Okay, okay, so in the apocalypse, that's basically what we're getting. So we're going to have to make a lot of this to get the get what we need, basically. Okay, so um, how do we make sure that this can run in a in a car? Because I can I put it in a flex fuel vehicle. What what's the equivalent when you think of uh, when you think of a flex fuel vehicle? Is it can run E eighty five? That's basically what that means. That's the standard that it can run at. What is this stuff? Well, that first I'm of all, what, is, what does E eighty five mean? It's an eighty five percent ethanol, fifteen percent gasoline regular gas mix so we're basically running e100 essentially is what we're doing right yeah and they got cars uh ford has cars down in brazil that run off of e100 because they got the sugarcane industry and they've actually got ecus that can detect the density of the fuel that's in them and they kind of switch over that's what the uh, that's what flex fuel is right uh yeah but i think i don't think the ones in north america are built to have quite that tolerance right but it would run yeah, it was so, wrong. So we got, yeah, we got to do a lot of distillation. Um, and the problem with that is uh, alcohol and water, uh, ethanol, we call it just regular drinking alcohol, right? It doesn't like separating from water. So we got to distill it a lot of times to get it up to a really high purity. And then, you know, once it's got that shiners, it's like 200 proof, right? So it's nearly 98%. Then we can try to put it in a car. When you said it has that shiners? Oh, sorry. Uh, when uh, the guys who are making this stuff, you know, back in the hills, uh, finish with a pint of it, they shake it. 
Okay. And when the bubbles uh, look a certain way when you shake it, you can tell that there's almost no water left in it. Interesting. Yeah, so there's kind of like a really crude just shake it up test that the shiners have to make sure, you know, the stuff they're buying hasn't been screwed with or cut or whatever. Right. And, and what it, what it kind of looks like is... I'm going to have to go through the liquor store and start shaking things. <laughs> They're going to be like, what the hell is this guy doing? Excuse me, sir. This looks like it's been... Yeah. <laughs> have you cut this, Captain Morgan? That reminds me of when I was back like 16 would have house parties and raid my dad's liquor cabinet. And then you fill it back up with water. Yeah. Yeah. And so my dad learned... Because my dad learned that I was drinking some of it. So he'd take a Sharpie and mark it. But uh. that was great because then I just fill it back up to the Sharpie mark. Yeah. Pretty soon your rum looks like vodka. Yeah. Well, had you known the shake test that probably would have proven me wrong yeah i mean the thing that's sticking in my head chris is when you say this i'm remembering that scene in like the second back to the future or was it like the third one when they're back in the wild west and they're yep. trying to fill the, the delorean with, yep. with alcohol and then like the intake manifold like flies out from under the car <laughs> right like, so I'm, I'm a little worried about do we do we have enough uh do we have enough octane here you know is it gonna when is when is the ignition gonna occur is it gonna blow up in the intake manifold and that stuff takes some takes some testing. Like the petroleum industry works really long and hard on making sure they get that right batch to batch when they make it. Is there any way for us to? Because I mean, the car's got a truck's got a knock sensor, right? I mean, are we able to go? Okay, this has got a knock sensor. It's going to detect pre ignition and immediately back off the timing. Or is it going to be too late and everything's just going to be danger to manifold? And it's and everything. And then your floorboard <laughs> falls down. All you have to do is close that laptop, and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I think. Uh, you know the the real the real nerd test would be if you still had any gasoline left you'd do you'd put two cups of it right next to each other a little bit in both and you'd light them on fire and you'd start you know you'd start probably adding water back to your ethanol or taking it away from it as you're trying to figure this out it's going to take you a couple months to get this right until the flame looks the same in in both containers right, oh we'll, interesting we'll just give out your address and anybody in the apocalypse can come uh, <laughs> come talk to you about getting their their ethanol slide okay so the the more reasonable solution is biodiesel. And um, I'm not talking necessarily talking fryer oil stuff here. I'm talking about creating biodiesel. How do you make that at home? So I actually made biodiesel at home for my old 98 uh, VW for a couple of years in college because I was poor. Um, and I turned it into my like senior, my senior thing for what I had to present to, to get my degree actually. And um, to make it at home, yeah, you start with vegetable oil. You want to get it really clean. And you got to make this stuff called methoxy or ethoxy. And basically what you do is you take a, you take a base, so uh, potassium hydroxide or sodium hydroxide, and you mix it with methanol or ethanol, which we just talked about making. So that's kind of right. handy. Yeah, there you go. You can do both. <laughs> and you mix that up. And uh, once, all the, once all the base dissolves into the alcohol, you pour it into the vegetable oil and you, you spin it around. And it does this really crazy reaction. If you want to get your organic chemistry nerd, nerdiness on, it's called a Fischer esterification. And the vegetable oil is called a transglyceride. And when you make that methoxide, what it does is it actually cuts off the three part of that that makes it a tri, and that's glycerin. So now you can go use that and make soap or whatever else you need to do in the post-apocalypse. Um, <laughs> soap, yeah, we want to be able to stay clean. Yeah, so that snips it, and then it leaves that long-chain oil with an alcohol group sitting on its butt, and that becomes your biodiesel. And why that's important is because it's got a much lower viscosity, and it doesn't have this icky, gooey residue when it burns, and it actually has a caloric value when you burn it that's just like diesel. Which, really? So the, the, when you just run pure fryer oil... Eventually, you're destroying injection pumps. You're destroying engines. Just because it's so dirty or? 
Well, it's, it's dirty. It doesn't have uh, the the lubrication level. So all this oh, stuff has sure. different viscosities and the, they call it the lubricity, if I'm saying that word right, sure. of the vegetable oil is way different than that of diesel or biodiesel. That makes sense. And the, the diesel engine requires, I mean, diesel. the diesel itself is part of the lubrication process of a diesel engine. Yeah. I did not know that. That's why and when you look at the oil, it's so dirty. It's all kind of... It's kind of like one thing, and the, and the high viscosity or low viscosity of a diesel is is, is really important. And that the, the, just the pure fry oil stuff is, is is no good. So basically, what you do then, what I'm guessing is you go over to McDonald's, which is obviously still running in the apocalypse. Naturally, guaranteed. It, actually, is there any way to do? Um, you you say vegetable oil, but is there any way to do uh, like animal oil, animal fat, any of that kind of thing? Because I there feel like go. that's going to be easier to get a hold of in the apocalypse than vegetable oil. Yeah, you can do it. It does. It does the same thing with that with that group that makes it a transglyceride. It snips it off both ways. One of the problems about animal oils is that they've got some more weirdness with their with their organic chain in the back. They're, they've got saturated units, and that's a whole other thing in a chemistry book. But it basically means that their uh, frost point is really high, right? So they tend to gel out. Okay. Oh. And so they're not as they're not as nice if your apocalypse happens in say Minnesota versus <laughs> California. Right, right, right. Well, you better hold on to some of that diesel nine one one and yeah. Oh, I, there you go. There was a time when I had a one of my rabbits was I've had many diesel rabbits, and I ran out of fuel. Just, That's really just, bad. And it's really bad. So I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? I'm I'm nowhere near a fuel station, but I was near an auto parts store. So I went <laughs> to the auto parts store. I bought like four jugs of that diesel nine one one stuff. And I filled up my injection pump. I cracked the injection pump open, filled up the injection pump, filled up the fuel filter, and then put the rest in the tank. Uh-huh. And prayed. And prayed. I basically cracked all the injectors open, cranked it over. It ran. It smelled like hell. It did not smell good, but it did run on just diesel 911. It did run on it. So Which whatever is that basically is. just something to keep it. It's an anti-gel. It's right? anti yeah, it's anti-gel, so it doesn't turn into a, a goo, you know. Right. Which you don't really necessarily need that stuff anymore. Because I think isn't it all aren't all diesel fuels now like winter blend? Don't they blend that into You get a winter fuel, blend, yeah, right? Yeah. And they and they and it doesn't happen overnight. It's kind of like the the blend happens over a course of weeks or 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 two months where it's kind of it's sort of winter blend. And by the time you get to December, it's like full winter blend. Gotcha. That makes sense. All right. So we are, we've made our own diesel. How do we store this stuff? Is there any, just put it in a bathtub or what are we doing? Yeah. I mean, if you have to. So, I mean, we need to get 55 gallon drums and a bunch of them if we're going to do all this stuff anyways. Right. So right. that's, that's where we want to put it when we're done. And then we need to like some kind of screen so we can just get the chunkies out of it. Right? And that's where you tie a bottom to your, you have a pair of jeans. And you tie the bottom of the jeans shut, and then you pour your vegetable oil in the jeans and put it underneath in a bucket, and then there you go. That's that's a. But Chris, my jeans now. I can't wear them. Yeah, well, you're probably not going to be wearing jeans in the apocalypse anyway. Well, you can, but they're waterproof now. No, that's yeah, that's even true. better. They slide on. You know all those skin tight jeans <laughs> oh, that your wife just wears. Slide right they're on. Just right on. Right off. Right on. Right off. No problem. Uh, is there anything else we need to know about making this, or is it kind of? This I, sounds really easy. I'm going to go make some now. I mean, if it's the end of the world, yeah, we're just going to throw that in our car and go. In the real world, yeah, you want to dry it out so you heat it up to get the water out of it. Heating up a fuel seems like a bad idea, Logan. That's why uh, petroleum refineries light on fire sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a lot of guys do is they'll run like uh, an electric heater with a coil through the tank to warm up all that stuff before they even start the car. Hmm. You know, all that stuff gets warm before it's used. I'm curious, is there any like 
pluses or minuses as far as efficiency, fuel efficiency, burn rate? You, you talked about caloric value for a little bit about the ethanol. I mean, is this homemade or fryer oil, diesel? How does that compare efficiency level to what you pump out of the pump today? Yeah, I think everybody's got, you know, some anecdotes if you find all the old man diesels out there that that have been doing this stuff. But what I found kind of is that my old TDI could get something like 52 on pump fuel and it got something like 48 on biodiesel. So it was really, really close. If you test huh. if you test it, they do this something called a caloric bomb test where they fill a little container up with oxygen and a little bit of the fuel that you weigh and you light it on fire and it sees how much, you know, how much energy it made out of that. They're like 85 to 95 percent the same. Wow, interesting. I also love anything called a bomb test. <laughs> it sounds like a Jake yeah moment. <laughs> yeah. So, so we're making I, I had a bomb test last Saturday night where I just got bombed. That's slightly different. <laughs> that didn't fly. That choke did not. <laughs> so we've got to land the way I was supposed to. So we okay. have a Chevy Tahoe that is uh, that can run on ethanol. <laughs> Uh, technically, and we're also making. If we're smart, we're using some of that ethanol to make biodiesel. That's what that's what we're doing. Because apparently, the, Chris has multiple vehicles in his apocalypse fleet. Yeah, I'm having every <laughs> single one of these. Okay, number five. You want to hang out for what we do? Count uh, count the rest of these down. You want to hang out? Yeah, sure. I got uh, some time. All right. Yeah, feel free to pipe in at any time if you think we're we'll, wrong. We'll make this one fairly. Or if you think Jake's wrong. I'm never wrong. But go ahead. Yeah. Okay. We'll make this one fairly quick because it's pretty obvious any air-cooled volkswagen bus and the main reason this is on the list is because they are so darn simple the joke is that all you need to fix an old air-cooled volkswagen is a hammer you could even get these things set up as campers from the factory which is kind of a testament is all the hippies have been using these things forever yeah they for basically, basically this purpose they live out of these things have you right. ever seen the video of the guy with the bug and he's got a a fan belt and he changes the fan belt while it's running with a screwdriver <laughs> it's i mean the, the, these things are they are dead reliable they run on point so they're emp proof which you know, we did establish most things most are. most things anyways. are emp proof but hey if there's a really big emp that's happening above your your shack that you've moved out to with your volkswagen bug in the middle of utah yeah you are you are going you're <laughs> going be to be set you're going to be all set okay um the next number four on the list this, I want to make it plain, is not Hollywood. We're not using stuntmen. We're not going to use any computer graphics. We haven't made any mechanical alterations to the car at all. We just picked it up from the farmyard and brought it here. All right, so if anybody knows anything about Top Gear, they know exactly what we're talking about. It is the Toyota Hilux yes. truck. Or, you know, if you want to get, you can get a Forerunner as well. If you want So I didn't realize the Forerunner and the Hilux are basically the same platform? Essentially the same platform. It's okay. The, it's the N60 platform. Gotcha. Um, this legendary truck comes with the 22RE engine, which is up there with another engine we're going to talk about later as one of the most reliable engines of all time. And obviously, you know this one from its, uh, from its debut on Top Gear. Well, the uh, mechanic has worked on it now for 40 minutes or so, I think. And uh, it's not looking good. Seems then that if you want to kill one of these things, the beach, the sea, salt water is the answer. Sorry. Um, wrong. So basically Astonishingly, was, the Toyota was not dead. Okay, so they, they drove this thing downstairs. 
Yep. Okay, they drove it downstairs. They drove it into a pole. They um, and eventually, what he ends up doing is backing the thing into the ocean, tying it down, and letting the tide come in <laughs> and take the truck away. This was one of the best episodes of the old Top Gear. Yeah. So the, the, basically, the mechanic who wasn't allowed to change out any parts was supposed to get the thing running again. The poor mechanic, by the way. It only took him 40 minutes. He took the spark plugs out. Okay. You can see him doing it. He gets the salt water out, sprays some WD-40 in there. <laughs> thing fires right up. <laughs> fires right up. Wow. So then they proceeded to do, uh, they dropped a camper on it, hit it with a wrecking ball. Clarkson sets it on fire. Uh, they parked it on top of a building 240 feet up and then <laughs> demolished the building. Again, we've got our mechanic with us, and as before, he's not allowed spare parts, and he can only use basic tools. Too much. It doesn't look good. The car's basically sitting in a pile of rubble. Oh, is this it? Right, this is it. I'm gonna give it a go. <laughs> what do you have to do to kill one? <laughs> you know, I, one thing that I really like about these is that they use the uh, the music from the American West. Oh yeah, it's basically the musical representation of what ne it, never dying. Yeah, you know, very American of, of Top Gear, which I don't know if they picked up on that reference or not when they were putting that together. But they big hat tip to America, you know, going with the, <laughs> with the highlights, yeah, anyway. uh, which ironically we don't get, anyways. Right, so, right. So kudos to the uh, the Toyota 4Runner. Obviously, that one. I see. I think that should probably be higher on the list. But uh, we'll see. It's I, one of the reasons why it's not higher on the list is because it, they're not just not available. They all rusted out, oh. and you can't really get them anymore. And they're really expensive. Yeah. I so suppose. there's kind of a kind of a double edged sword. Double edged sword. We'll so these things have all wheel drive. They have storage. You can put a topper on them. You could sleep in them. Yep. Got a transfer case, so they're going to take you anywhere you want to go, and you can drive it into the ocean apparently, and it's going and it's to fine. be fine. And drive it off a building. Drive it up. Well, maybe. Okay. So number three on my list is uh -huh. a 1983 Grumman Cubvin, which is what? Okay. So. You guys knew that a Volkswagen diesel had to be on this list somewhere. Okay. <laughs> it had to be on there somewhere. So the uh, this thing was essentially a sales pitch. Grumman Olsen was trying to get USPS to bid for manufacturing a postal carrier vehicle. Oh, okay. So this basically looks like a little mail truck. Um, th at the time, they made other kinds of delivery trucks, too, and you can you can actually tie this company back to the first aluminum walk-in van. Grumman Olsen is a collaboration between Northrop Grumman and Morgan Olsen. Um, between 1983 and 1985, they produced 500 Cubvins in two different models. Now, this sounds German. Is this a German company? No. No. Is Northrop Grumman a German company? No, they're in North America. Yeah, it's, it's I, don't, I don't recognize the name. You don't recognize... Oh, Cubvin, you don't recognize the name. It's built by Northrop Grumman. It's Morgan... It's. I don't know what that is either. I just told you. Were you not listening? I don't know what Northman Grumman is. Grumman Olsen was... Jake, I said what? Grumman Olsen is a collabor collaboration between Northrop Grumman and Morgan Olsen. Yeah, I don't know what Northrop Grumman or Morgan Olsen are. Northrop Grumman is an avionics company. Cool. I didn't know that. With like huge. Why are you yelling at me, Chris? I figured, do you know who Northrop Grumman is? Yeah. Okay. I feel like every red blooded American should know who Northrop Grumman is. Never heard that term okay, or so company or the, whatever it is. It's basically ever. an aviation company. Cool. So they, they uh, got together with Morgan and. Which I this. suppose makes sense because they do aluminum. Right. So it was a lot of aluminum stuff. Um, they had they have a higher uh, low floor cargo area, depending on which model you got. Uh, dual or single rear doors, automatic or manual, left or right-hand drive, depending sure. on the application that you have. So this is an extremely simple box delivery truck. 
very small. When mm-hmm. you when you look out and you see the postal vans that yep. are driving around, they're basically that size. Sure. But they have a Volkswagen diesel 1.6 engine in them, which is an extremely reliable engine. Small displacement. Um, this thing will run without a battery. They have uh, on the injection pump, mm-hmm. they have something called the start-stop solenoid. Okay, and it's this little piston that lets fuel in or does not let fuel in to the <laughs> injection pump. And what you could do you could take it off, take the little piston out, put it back together, start it up on the battery, and then you could it would not stop running. Yeah. You until it ran out of fuel, you could not stop it or left you put your hand over the intake manifold. There was no way to shut it off. And that's how I basically learned, wow, the only thing that you need to keep this thing running to turn it on and off is like a 12-volt source to this solenoid. That's it. There is no other thing needed to keep that thing running. It's naturally aspirated. You could get Later on, you could get a turbo version of these if you want, but they didn't come in this. A Volkswagen Rabbit would be great, but I was thinking the But cup, you need more space. You need more space. The cup sure. is is it's aluminum. It's never going to corrode. Um, you can put stuff in the back with a little hatchback. I mean, the livability, as we talked about earlier, living in a Volkswagen Rabbit is, it seems I, really, I'm really lacking important. some Overland features here, though, Chris. We, we don't have any sort of all-wheel drive. We don't have all-wheel drive, but we do have front-wheel drive, which is... Front wheel drive, front engine, going to be pretty decent for getting around. I feel like this would be like a more of an urban getaway type of thing. Um, and if it's painted up like a mail truck, it just blends in. I mean, you can do that Kevin Costner thing, right? Waterworld? The, the, the Postman? or The Postman, yeah. Waterworld? Waterworld, Postman, almost the, almost, almost the same movie. <laughs> These things are dead reliable. They go hundreds of thousands of miles without ever being touched. They develop 54 horsepower. 73 pound-feet of torque, and they have a 23.5-to-1 compression ratio. <laughs> Gotta love diesel. Um, the internet says the top speed for a Volkswagen Rabbit is 89 miles per hour, and there is a 0% chance that that's true. 0% <laughs> chance. Um, I'd, so I'd much rather have this than a Rabbit or a pickup. And uh, with 50 miles per gallon in an aluminum little van, you've got fuel economy, you've got livability, you've got space. The only thing you don't have with this is... Is uh, morale maybe a little low? Oh yeah, yeah. We forgot about morale. Morale the might list. be a little bit low. I think they're mm. cool, but at some point, I mean, morale could get low. Um, the seats are not very comfortable. You're basically mm. sitting and bolted to the floor. Yeah, it, like it's like you're driving around a little little tiny little school bus. Um, but hey, man, these things run will run forever. Never corrode. They're simple. Um, I think there's probably still enough Volkswagen Rabbit stuff around that you could find parts for it. Even if you can't find parts for it, like I said don't need anything to make this thing run <laughs> and you put a couch in the front seat and instead and then you're sad oh, there you go there you go we're, we're all set. love it all right number two on the list you want to yes. take this one Jake? this is the citroen 2cv sahara bimotor four-wheel drive version chris we did an entire episode on this crazy french car the 2cv that is right the citroen 2z was conceived before actually world war ii and was meant to get rural france on the road it was cheap simple and honestly quite strange from an engineering perspective this literally was marketed to people who had only had a horse before so that just goes to show you how simple and basically industrialist this vehicle was however that's an extremely w- redundant it was but that's not what we're talking about okay we're focusing on the citroen 2cv Sahara 
Sahara. I was going to say Safari. That's a totally different type of car. The Sahara is a rare 4x4 variant built between 1958 and 1971. And in typical strange French fashion, rather than simply add a transfer case and a drive shaft to the rear wheels like every other four-wheel drive vehicle out there, Citroen's engineers added an entire second engine and driveline in the rear of the car. In this case, both engines operated totally independently and even had separate fuel tanks. How's that for redundancy? Right. That's just it. So you could operate it just as a conventional front-wheel drive car simply by not turning on the rear engine. And if you kick in the rear, now you've got four-wheel drive and a top speed of 60 miles per hour, which is apparently terrifying if you've ever been in a 2CV. <sighs> so because the 2CV weighs so little, these reportedly possess goat-like agility off-road. It basically weighs nothing and has a decent amount of power in a tin can. And like you they're said... Air, they're they're air-cooled. Right. They air don't cooled. have an external cooler at all. Like you said, uh, re re redundancy. If are, one motor broke, you could literally just keep keep going. This, you could crank start these. Oh, really? These like hand-crank You can hand-crank start these. These things are... Yeah, it's a little two-cylinder. the simplest vehicle i could find yeah well basically. good luck finding one chris that's what keeps it from being at number one yeah there's uh just six shy of 700 saharas were ever built wow so, so you're not you're probably not gonna not find, gonna find one, one, one of those. good for morale though because these things would be kind of neat to drive around I think <laughs> they're it'd be very good. goofy looking very good for morale. all right number one on the list the best apocalypse this car is the, ever. The best apocalypse vehicle. According that to Chris. You, according according, to, according me, to Chris. And according to everybody else after they hear my explanation. According to Chris. The Mercedes W123 diesel model range. Specifically the turbo diesel or the, the turbo diesel um, T, which is the wagon. Okay. This is the ultimate in reliability, performance, and utility. The only thing it lacks is all-wheel drive. Um, I want to read a little bit of a... You were just saying how front-wheel drive is so much better. I didn't say it was better. I said it's great. You go, oh, that's great. It but great. now you're saying the best one only has rear-wheel drive. Uh, it, it, that is the only thing that it's lacking. If if there was an all-wheel drive version one of these, it would be the best vehicle ever made, in my opinion. <laughs> All right. So I want to read a little bit from my book. Uh, Mercedes-Benz. It's not a great title. It's almost like a question. Uh, Mercedes-Benz <laughs> W123, the finest saloon car of the 20th century? Century? So, yeah, exactly. Um, here we go. The W123 embodied everything Daimler-Benz AG had been working towards for over a century of automobile manufacture. A vehicle that blended tireless development, the use of the best materials, and uncompromising manufacturing techniques while incorporating the latest, fully proven technology. You will recognize the car's shape instantly from the taxi ranks of Lisbon, Vienna, Buenos Aires, or Tehran. But those who dismiss the W123 as a mere workhorse unwittingly pay it the greatest possible compliment. For this car that hundreds of thousands of professional drivers depended upon to pay their rent and feed their children, it was a loyal and reliable friend for millions. To call the 123 a true world car does not diminish its credibility as a sophisticated product of Western Europe, Western Europe's most technically advanced society. It was a collection of compromises, of course, like any motor car, yet making the right compromises culminated in a car of such effortless supremacy in so many areas <laughs> that it is hard to think of any credible rival. Here was a car from a company that had finally put the Second World War behind it. A car designed, built, and driven by a generation of Germans who were too young to have played a part in the conflict, but who, to a certain extent, still felt the associated burden of guilt. It was a car born into a country being terrorized by the Bader-Meinhof group and into an era of West German synthesizer bands like Tangerine Dream, Faust, and Kraftwerk. 
Which we just listened to we some Tangerine Dream. We just listened to some Tangerine Dream. Very good. And just as these young German musicians wanted to make a new kind of music that was acceptable across Europe, just as the architects of the Munich Olympic Stadium wanted to move away from the monolithic structures that characterized pre-war National Socialist architecture, so Mercedes-Benz wanted to make a car less obviously Teutonic in character, more obviously European. Thus, the W123 was the first friendly Mercedes saloon. I, I don't think it's a friendly looking car, for the record. Why is that? It's very boxy and old man. You have to look at it in the context of when it was made, which is the late 70s. When you look at all the other things there, it's far less boxy than mm. anything the Americans were doing. And there's one of these cars <clears throat> sitting at the sitting at the Mercedes-Benz Museum in Stuttgart, and mm -hmm. it's got like, there's a sign next to it. I can't remember if it's got two or three or five million kilometers on it with the original. Oh, I know they run forever. But they just got it sitting there like rotating slowly on a pedestal now. Do you know why they run forever? Why is that? Old men drive them and never accelerate faster. Than well, like you can't really accelerate very fast because they're, they're <laughs> they weigh nine tons. <laughs> they, they are they are quite slow. Um, in 1977, a, a new W123 won the Lin London to Sydney Rally, a six and a half week, thirty thousand kilometer rally over incredible tough and varied terrain across Asia to Australia. The only changes to the car were skid plates, suspension adjustments, and larger fuel tanks. That's pretty impressive. That's it. Yeah, that is it. that's they made, impressive. They made 2.7 million of these. 2.7 wow. million. Half of those were diesels. The 300D engine, which is the OM617, is a turbo five-cylinder uh, run with Bosch mechanical diesel injection. It's the same injection that is on the, on the Rabbit, basically. Right. Uh, most diesels back then, I think, as, at least in Europe, had uh, Bosch injection. And what it is, is it's just like a... It's just a uh, pump. It's just a pump, right? It's got a little rotary, rotary thing in it that just pushes the pressure out the injectors, and that's it. That's all it does. And that is the only thing other than a water pump that your belt is running. It's, it's absolutely incredible how dead reliable they are. The start-stop on these is run by vacuum. Mm. So there's a vacuum switch that uh, these things are. The only problem with these cars um, is that everything is a vacuum system. <laughs> so the And lines tend to harden and crack. They harden and crack, but they still run. I mean, it still is going to run. Yeah. Uh, but your power locks may not work is basically, basically what I'm saying. Which might be necessary in an apocalypse, Chris. Uh, yeah, maybe. Although... Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. Um, so basically, the transmission is run by vacuum. All the shift points in the transmission are see, run by vacuum. See, that sounds terrible. <laughs> that, you yeah. you are not selling me on the reliability. The, uh, but they even when it's all disconnected, they still work. It still <laughs> that doesn't make so sense. It's, an it just does, it's just not as smooth. Oh, okay. It just shifts harder. Um, the ignition switches vacuum. <laughs> so it when you no. turn yes. So when you turn the key off, it shuts vacuum off to the start stop solenoid, which is what basically keeps the fuel flowing to the injection pump. So it's not electrical, it's a vacuum. Wow. Yeah, so it's a vacuum. So it literally, if you can get if you had a manual, you could not have a battery in this vehicle. You could not have one at all. You could push start it, run, drive around, and never have a battery, never need a battery. That's cool. And uh, these things go uh, well over five hundred thousand miles with ever without ever being rebuilt. Yeah. In my opinion, it is the most reliable uh, passenger car ever made. They just do not break. They don't. The transmissions don't break. The motors last forever. Um, they, they run on biodiesel well. I mean, you can put whatever you want in them, and they will run. Um, obviously, we talked about how it's not good for them in the long run, but you can put – what have we talked about that you can put, uh, like, some tanks and stuff like that? Where they, yeah. Where it they can, was the – what is it? Was it the original Jeep they made it where it's super low compression, so you can run it on – 
No, what was it? Because there was the Mexican president took it down and ran it on tequila, whatever it was. What were we talking about? Oh my what goodness, this is one of our history episodes. I can't remember. Oh no. You could run it on anything, including tequila. And so the Mexican president was like, send me one, and he did. I perfume. Don't... You could run it on perfume as well. Is anyway. it the citron? No. No. Basically, what the heck what, was it? What I'm saying is that you can run this thing on almost anything that's diesel. You can run it on kerosene. You can put kerosene in it and it'll run. You can put biodiesel in it and it'll run. You can put the worst shitty diesel in it and it will still run. I uh, my I, I went to prom in one of these, as you guys know. I've talked about multiple experiences that I've had in these vehicles, and uh, <laughs> which I will not bring up again because I heard my father-in-law listens to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> my my parents, the one they had that I went to prom in, sat for I don't know fifteen years. Just sat there after I went to school. My grandpa didn't drive it anymore. And he just wasn't that interested in it. I went down. I took the, in, the cap off the injection pump. I took ATF. And the injection pump was dry. There was no mm-hmm. diesel in it. It was, all, it was all gone. And I poured ATF in it. I let it sit for 24 hours. I uh, put a little jug next to it with diesel in it. You can just run it off a jerry can, basically, with diesel in it. Fired right up. <laughs> it, the thing ran on ATF that was in the injection pump. Wow. And then switched over to the diesel. And then I hooked up the hooked up the gas tank, put fresh diesel in it. And then I put like three or 4,000 miles on it and drove around here in Minneapolis for a while. And then I took it back down, dropped it off my grandparents after doing all kinds of work on it to get it ready where he could drive it again. Mm-hmm. And he didn't really drive it. But the other day, he wanted to pull it out of the garage after it sat for another, you know, six or seven years. Thing just, he didn't do anything. Just started right up, no problem, idles away. They are incredible cars. Okay, one more question. Yes. Do they have a timing belt or a timing chain? That, I, uh, off the top of my head, I don't remember. Um, I know I th- it is cam over. I'm pretty sure these are a timing belt because the injection pumps run off a belt. I'm I'm almost positive these run on a belt. The 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 V8 gasoline engines that Mercedes has runs off a timing chain. So that's like the one last uh, Achilles heel and a good diesel, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. You got to keep that timing exactly right. So I have one more quote from the book, and yep. then we'll then we'll move on. Naturally, it was all too good to last. They're talking about the the model. Legend has it that at a meeting of Mercedes-Benz shareholders in the late 70s, one of the directors announced that the firm's cars were lasting too long and need to be made for a bigger market. This change in direction and attitude signaled the end for over-engineered cars and traditional Mercedes cars like the W123 range. Was that executive American? Uh, it's, 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 it's very possible. So basically they said, hey. Engineered obsolescence. They, they needed to engineer it into it. They The car was just over-engineered. And even the, the W124... Which came later is is a brilliant car, but it's just this car was the last of something that I would call bulletproof from Europe. Mm-hmm. It's uh it's it's a legend, and I, I couldn't think of any other car that I'd want to have in the apocalypse than a one twenty three three hundred D wagon. That's fitting for you, Chris. I agree to disagree. You based I'm, on I'm, what? I'm with Chris. Tell me how I'm wrong. <laughs> tell me tell me why I, this I isn't do, the okay, best Okay, so vehicle. my argument would be I would want something that has a little more ground clearance, more ability to go off-road, to climb over cars or people. But so what, you want Bigfoot the monster truck? I was thinking like, is, a, like a Hummer, like an actual H1 military-grade Hummer. Yeah. That is completely impractical. They get terrible fuel economy. You're never going to find parts. There's not that many of them. I mean... How would that be? They're huge. I, I'm going to run you gonna right over your Mercedes, Chris. So the only way this works is if you're like next to the military base that everybody evacuated and they didn't touch the entire <laughs> motor pool. Well, and the in that million. case, I'll just take like one of their helicopters. See, here's the thing. What's that? 
I buy one of these uh-huh. for my apocalypse vehicle. Uh-huh. I can drive it every day comfortably with my family. I can drive it right now. I can drive it to the grocery store. I can drive it on the freeway. It gets 25 miles per gallon. does a great job. It's dead reliable. It's not going to cost me any extra money. You're going to drive around in some military H1 with seats bol- bolted <laughs> Chris, to the floor? Chris, who are you talking to? Of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the military H1 probably, uh, maybe we should have put that on the list. But, yeah, it deserves to um, I just don't think that that's a practical option. I just don't think it's bad. It's bad for morale. No, for oh morale. no, that is so high on morale. Only for you. Yeah. Only for you. <laughs> Only for you. All right, we have a couple more things on the list from Jake. But before we get there, what have you got for us? Yeah, we have to remind you guys to head over to patreon.com slash overcrest. And good news, the pins that we've teased about are in. Yeah, and- the, the ones that Glenn Coral designed for us, the little, the little two-dimensional pins. They're limited edition, one of 50. And all of our $25 sponsors, uh, uh, Patreons, are going to get one. We're going to send it to them. All of the uh, the $10 patrons that we've got are going to get first access to the ones that we have to buy at a steep discount. Um, I'm not even sure we're going to have any left after that. But if we do have any left, they'll be for sale on the website. Um, basically, it's your car, my car, and the Overcrest logo yeah. as three separate pins. They are, they're super rad. Yeah, they look um, really nice. And other than that, of course, we're going to try and do little things like this. For the Patreons as we go. We don't Absolutely. know exactly what they're going to be. This is just the I have a thing couple other to... things that are in the works that I don't want to tease yet because it may not pan out. All right. Well, but we'll I'm working on other we're stuff. We're going to keep trying. and, and I also course... have, a, you also get access to, I'm not talking about my exclusive history stories that we do as well. Yeah, which we've got a really great one coming up. I'm, do. I'm looking forward to doing that later this evening. Um, so it's head over to patreon.com slash overcrest. Support the show. Don't be a freeloader. You know, <laughs> support the things that matter to you. It's only 5 dollars a month ten dollars a month we'll, we'll send you a shirt you know we'll send you a shirt for free for your ten dollars a month 25 dollars a month you get a print and a shirt and uh all these uh, all the tiers also get access to our personal voicemail if you want to call into the show yep we can listen to you also i you know i, I really do interact quite a bit with the patreons as much as i can and and hang out with them guys because it's you know without them none of this happens that's right. why we're here. It's how we pay the rent. It's how we do this. And we really appreciate um, everybody. So if you'd like to access some of this stuff and some of the things that are coming in the future, uh, patreon.com slash overcrest. Okay, what have you got for us? So we talked about passenger vehicles, Chris. But what about bikes, motorcycles, and yeah. maybe even ATVs, you're, that sort of stuff, you're right? You're a 24-year-old dude or girl. and Why do you, I have to be 24? Because you're young. I'm young. <laughs> all right go ahead no so speaking of the apocalypse did you ever watch the walking dead of course yeah so one of the characters uh daryl dixon he rides a pretty badass bike that is obviously designed just for this scenario you want to hear it i do Oh, yeah, if you're curious, it's based off a 1992 Honda CB750 Nighthawk. Wait a second. <laughs> which is not what you just heard. <laughs> that was not what we just so heard. So was... frustrating when we looked into this. this I researched is what actually... the bike. This yeah. is actually what it's supposed to sound like. Yeah. yeah. I think it sounds better. Way better. 
but it didn't. Better. I don't think it matched the character. No, you know the, what I well, mean. Hot, they put basically a Harley sound over a Honda what CB seven fifty, a four cylinder. Yeah, so they put a Harley sound over it. But regardless, it's based off a ninety two CB seven fifty Nighthawk, but it features an upgraded front end from a Yamaha R six, big off road tires, and this does tick a lot of the boxes you'd want in an end of the world type of bike. It's a Honda engine, so it should run forever. It's carbureted, so it can easily be serviced and repaired without any electronics. And the upgraded suspension and ground clearance make sure you can get to wherever you need to go, even when the road stops. Now, Chris, I really like bikes, as you know, so my personal pick would definitely be a bike. It should be an adventure-style bike, I think, with on- and off-road capability. And I love the idea of my own Ducati Scrambler that we have in the garage. That you just lowered. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I put it in short person mode. <laughs> uh, it's like a super high-end Olin's shock, and I like lowered it all the way down, but it wasn't quite low enough. So I disassembled the whole Olin's and took off one of the retaining rings on the, you know, it's a coilover basically yep. with the locking. So I took off one locking ring to get a little bit lower. Wow. So yeah. it's, so you, can you keep your feet around the ground comfortably yeah. now? <laughs> <laughs> Regardless, though, that would not be uh, the best option for an end of the world bike because valve train service alone would put you out of commission when society implodes on itself i think that you would just want a dirt bike yeah basically but you want something a little more comfy and can actually hold some cargo yeah so it was a dirt bike well you so well here's what i did thinking back to our interview with elspeth beard do you remember her i do i do so she was the first woman to circumnavigate the globe on a motorcycle by herself mind you yeah if you haven't listened to that episode you should it's really, really yeah good. so she used an older bmw it was like an r80 i think and i think that would be a solid choice for this why is that well, if you listen to the interview, she basically did, she built an entire wiring harness on the side of the road in the Sahara because hers burnt up and she's able to do that because it's such a simple bike. She rebuilt it several times along the journey and it's just so dead nuts reliable. The only thing that I don't like about a motorcycle in the apocalypse scenario is how vulnerable you are and it doesn't offer you a place to sleep or keep your stuff. That's the only thing I don't. You like would about need it. some panniers and like side racks and stuff. Even like, let's say you're on this, you got to pull over to a rest stop, you got to sleep somewhere, you got to do something. So the, I'm thinking more no, no, shelter, no shelter. I'm thinking more outside of urban environments. Like this is like you're out in the woods, right? Okay. Then you can actually get around where cars can't. You can go deeper. You can be more maneuverable. I That's like, my thought. I like the idea of this. Um, and like a, uh, I would put this in the back of my Hummer, Chris. I was thinking one of the four-wheel drive vans that we talked about earlier, which are far more and then practical one of than these. a Hummer. I just the Hummer. I can't get to the Hummer, man. It's no? just so. Just, what about a Hummer with a pickup uh, camper back? Like you know the pickup campers that you put in the back of your pickup. They're so. I'm gonna put one of those on top of a Hummer. They're Done. so impractical. Done. If you could, let's, here's the thing though: is if you could get one, one of the old ones with like an Olin's generator on it and stuff like that. Uh, I think that would be pretty. They're Olin, right? Is that the name? I know uh, the Olin's Olin, is Olin generator. Okay, I was gonna say Olin's is the suspension I just put in. Yeah, that's Olin. The Olin generators that they have in those things, you can run them off of diesel or petrol. I think well, I think are, most of those Hummers because it's a GM non-turbocharged um, V8 diesel, right? And I think those are mostly flex fuel as well, where you can run them off just about anything. Yeah, they're just. I think they're too big. I think in an urban environment that's clogged with cars that are broken down, you run them over. You can't do that every day, forever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think I'll just put a push bar on my W123. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, we're going to let you go. Um, Logan, thank you so much for coming in and hanging out. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, guys. Make sure you subscribe, leave a five-star review, and if you have any cars that you want to add to this list, make sure you send them to us. I'm sure we forgot a few. Uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you, and we'll see you on 
Monday. Take care.